I'm Katie. I'm Josie. And this is Something Spookish. And uh, we have a special edition today. We have Greg Walters with us. Greg, welcome. Hi. Hi, Greg. Yes, it's so good yes, to welcome. finally have you on the podcast. This has been a, a long time coming. Thank you. Well, thank you for the invite, and I deeply appreciate being here. Wonderful. Well, and I think we got our paths crossed because we're both interested in different aspects of the paranormal, And but more and more, Josie and I have been coming across stories about cryptids and other beings more so than just ghosts and spirits and things and so that's why we're so excited to talk to you today. Greg, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a recently developed author. Prior to this, I I also, um, well also during this I should say, I help people with their Medicare insurance plans which is not the most exciting thing but um, but you get to meet a lot of interesting elders. Um, and from that, but going back in time before that, I worked on tugboats going around the world or at least once or twice, and then also worked on fishing boats in Alaska. I was in the coast guard. I'm an avid hiker. I spend a lot of time up in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. I'm also a map collector, which is a very strange hobby, but, but I have a collection of about 1200 forest service maps dating back to the turn of the century. So finding these old pack trails and going out there on the ground and relocating this stuff is really fun. You're never uh, going to be lost. I'm never going to be <laughs> lost. Just like what Daniel Boone once said was that I've never been lost, just a mite confused for a few days. <laughs> I'll find my way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, is, so, is it in all of your travels that you, like, how did you even, it sounds like you have been involved in so much, but not necessarily anything to do with cryptids. And so I'm wondering, how did you even begin to get involved in that area? Stumble into this thing. Um, yeah. Well, for many years, I foraged for mushrooms. I also, I've done some deer hunting and fishing and so forth like that, mainly like commercial fishing. But within all of that, spending a lot of time in the backcountry, going into areas, I was always fascinated with these overlooked areas, five to 10 square miles where they have not not the high mountain peaks and the crystal lakes, just these mountainous forested areas that might have ponds and you know different sorts of different sorts of features to them, but normally unattractive to most people because most people want to have that scenery. And so within that, I'm also an avid student of local history, especially regional history of say Northern California, Southern Oregon, going back to Euro American times, but then digging in further into the Native American and and the tribes, their ability to live on the land. And then that quickly led me into their creation lore. And within the oh, creation lore, this is where this is where it really gets fun. And it's really not that dissimilar to our own Greek mythology, where, you know, they have these 25 foot salamanders that live in lakes and, you know, and the stories of coyote and how coyote is the trickster and you know, he's always doing something mischievous, but how we brought fire to the to the natives. And so it just dives into their their ability to survive in an otherwise inhospitable landscape. 
this is what got me into the story. And then, and then from there, um, what it was, was I was at a time in my life where I was at kind of a crossroads and I decided to take a walk in an area that I knew was a, was, was kind of a sacred area, at least in part, I didn't know. So that's what led me into this place. And stupidly, I just kind of stumbled into this. And what was fascinating with it was after my encounter, and once I got back home, and even like years later, taking some classes by Native elders, they told me what I experienced, and I didn't even tell them, you know, about it other than I mentioned, you know, what, what are your thoughts on like this, you know, at the cryptid and um, you know, with Sasquatch, they all have different names for them. And so it depends on what, what language, what linguistic stock, and also the, the personal meaning that it means to, to them. You know, some of them are very malevolent, some are very benevolent, and it really depends on who's approaching them. Oh, so interesting. I'm so you're saying, okay, so my first question is, it sounds like you actually ran into one and then asked about your experience. And two, I've never heard it described that way, but I think what you're saying makes sense based of all the stories that I've heard about people's encounters with Bigfoot. They're either, they either seem really kind and, you know, that they're not there to hurt you. But then in other times people have seriously sounds like thought they were going to die, that maybe they were under attack. And so to hear that it could go both ways is really interesting. And that, yeah. that depends on how you approach them. Yes. Almost certain. Yeah. Huh. I mean, some of that too is that, so then tie into this, if you guys really want to go, you know, while we're exploring this is it goes quickly into their, because, because Bigfoot would be similar to our Jesus. And oh, really? But then for the native God? people? Yes. Oh, yeah. I've never heard it described that way. That's so interesting. Okay. Yeah. There's a book, a friend of mine, a colleague um, from the Oregon Caves National Monument. And um, and this was a book he wrote. It's called American Elves, and it's an encyclopedia oh. of the little people from, you know, based on 380 ethnic groups throughout the Western Hemisphere. And this is just the Western Hemisphere. What about the Southern, the Northern Hemisphere? The, you know, and so and so when you get into the little people, the way I break it off is in three different groups. You've got dwarves that are afflicted with basically a medical ailment you know, a disability of sorts. And, um, and, but they're living people and, you know, we see them in movies and so forth like this, um, you know, afflicted with this, it's a bone disease. It's, it's like a degenerative bone disease. And then you also have small people and those like they've found skeletons in caves and so forth. Like there's a cave in Wyoming where they found about six of them. And these things stood about two and a half, three feet tall, but they were humans. I have a picture in one of my books from India where the guy stands 22 inches tall and he's 56 years old. But I mean, these are humans. They're, they're just small people. Okay. And then, now this is where it gets fun. And you guys rock on this is the, is the spiritual side of this. And these things are, they take on many different forms. They shape shift. They are purportedly, they live for two to 3000 years. The same fellow that wrote this book, John, one of his, friends and a colleague or they're like a fellow park service worker was up at Mount Rainier National Park. He was working on like a generator. It was right in September. So the first snows had fallen up there 
and he's out there, you know, traipsing around. He goes over to this little shed and he's working on it. And he hears these little footfalls and he looks out and he sees this thing. It just goes, eh. and it's about two and a half feet tall with deer legs and a human body. And it goes running into a little yeah. side gulch, boom, gone. Um, and you know, I just see. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so and so that's that's one of the little people where they where they manifest into their form, you know, or into their true form. Oh, um, interesting. And it's the yeah. little people that you're saying are have this uh spirit component? Yeah, so they're so they live for two to three thousand years, as best as we know. We really don't even know. But there's lots of stories about them, there's lots of lore. If you ask native elders anywhere, even you know, Colorado especially. They definitely, I mean, there's no like, well, maybe, yeah, no, they're spot on. They're, yeah, these things are real. They're highly respected. Like out here in the deserts, if you were ever to even get a glimpse of one, the best place to see one is at a spring. And the spring, that is so key because that is life. Water is life in the desert. You know, these, these little spirituals are going to be there from time to the time. The shape-shifting is really interesting, like... Yeah, that that is that's a that's a that's a real thing is shape shifting. Yeah, that's that's the salamander, and um, or at least that's what I saw, you know. And to me, it was just the most awesome, beautiful Pacific giant salamander. And it was so weird because I had these guys as pets when I was a kid, and then here I am, you know, confronting the salamanders. Here he is, right here. So on my encounter, what it was the first night I went to one place. And, um, and I basically burned some sage and, and I was in a, you know, very emotional state. I may have said at least once or, you know, whispered like, yes, I'd like to have an encounter. I'm open to this, uh, this, this kind of mentality going through my head as I was, as I was releasing this, this fragrant smoke into the air, very small amount. And it was all, it's all very small, but I think that that was the trigger. And then from there, they had to do, so test number two. So I went back to my car, repacked my pack that next day, took off onto this other trail that was a, that was a 60 mile loop hike in this, in, in the Southern part of a wilderness area. And on night number two, I went to a place, beautiful meadow. There was actually, believe it or not, there was a communal bear pooping area. And so where there were like piles and piles and piles of bear poop which I thought was very strange, but, but I've actually heard different stories about this in, in these mountain ranges. Um, and so, so at any rate, I go over to the stream to get some water and it's this beautiful spring bubbling out from these old cedars. And there, at, there right in the little spring was this, was this beautiful salamander, a Pacific giant. And um, I, wow, look, a big bold middle leaf. That's what I used to call him. And so I picked him up and thanked him for being there and, you know, placed him back down very carefully. And that next night I had my encounter and that was in a place, it was an amphitheater. It was where there was a trail junction, but the trails are basically like deer traces. I mean, they're barely wildlife trails really, but there's cairns out there in, in certain places. Um, it takes an effort to find them. And so but basically from there, I continued on my hike the next day and, um, and came back out and years later, this is where I had an elder tell me that, well, the way they do it, you know, within the apprentices or the shamans that, you know, when they go up to these areas, they know they're on the right track and they know they're doing all the right things when they encounter a salamander in a spring. 
And then that next night you'll have your encounter. And then what they do is they sing a song of introduction and then they sing a song seeking knowledge. And had I known those songs, I would have communicated with this thing. And so and when you say, um, so it sounds like after you see the salamander, they're saying that's your sign that you'll, you'll have an encounter. What do you mean by an encounter? Well, that's, that's where you would then that next night, right at the right time of power. Um, and Carlos Castaneda touched on this in his book, Tales of Power, where it's that thin red line. It's that time between, between day and into night. And it's a, it's a very, it's a very sacred time actually, you know, where you're in this, where you're in this transition, um, in our world. And that's, that's when this thing appeared. And it was also on the night of not only a full moon, but a blue moon. And, um, and the and moon you mean had, a, and I'm so sorry. Are, are you saying that you encountered them um, like a Sasquatch as we would call it? Yes. Okay. Okay. That's what I was just trying to make sure of. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was my, yeah, that was, yeah, the upslope people. And there's different names for them. They have the sky people, the above the clouds people, and they all have different, different tribal names. And it's based on their linguistic stock. That's why it's really amazing. You know, like within the Sioux lore, I think one of the things they say that if you can just approach one of those things and just touch him finger to finger, that you will get power that allows you where nature will come to you. And, you know, another thing with these things too, I should mention is that once you're in their area, they already know you're there. And so then they come to you, you don't go to them. And that's a common misnomer. I think people have with these that, you know, they're constantly going to go find it and know it has to come to you. Interesting. How do I, how do I touch fingers with a Sasquatch? (laughs) Walk up, (laughs) finger out. You know, and just hope he, that he, hope that he reciprocates. Right. You gotta, you yeah, gotta you find gotta, one, Josie. Yeah, and they have, have to find to, you. No, they have you, to find me. Yeah. You know, because the, within my encounter with this thing, I mean, it looked at me with these eyes that were these icy gray. I mean, he looked right through me. He could read everything about me. And, you know, I just felt like there was no hiding anything from this thing. Um, wow. That it knew exactly my thoughts, my intentions. Um, Did he just? Was this like a sti- like, like stereotypical big hairy thing? Just yeah, like yes, that. just but like that, like that in yeah, the photo thinner. that thicker that you have. Yeah. Was this at wow. nighttime or in the? This yes. was at the the, the power the time of the power, like d- the transition dusk. of the day. Yes. Yeah. And so and so it was it was basically completely dark, and it was in the shadow of this. Of, of the very top of the ridge line. The other thing that was weird with my encounter, I dropped my pack when I got to this place. I said, okay, there's gotta be a camp here somewhere, a nice flat area, semi-forested. And, but there was two things going, actually three things going on there. One was that it was a geologic transition zone. And so it was going from daysite to serpentine. And serpentine is the, the rock that's at the earth's mantle and in this case, it had been uplifted. And one thing about Southwest Oregon and Northwest California is they have one of the largest unbroken sheets of serpentine. It's it's mineral rich, calcium poor. So it's going to invite plant, plant species that are known literally nowhere else. And so it's this majorly you know, biodiverse area. And then the other one was more of a granitic or, or even volcanic source. And so now you get the conifer forests and, you know, like this. But still, when you're on that contact zone, 
my question is is that is that a is that a point of reference these things can find from even like up there and so if this thing was traveling from this other world and this is another thing when you get into you know like how do these you know, like, like origins we can discuss that as far as dimensional theory versus them traveling like a traversable wormhole that's what i played with within my book because it's science fiction um, so the encounter, what had happened was I get up on this ridgeline, I'm camped there, the sun's going down, and I strip off my clothes to basically throw some water over my head. I warmed up some water, and, and I walked over to a place where there was a nice flat rock, but I looked down and see a footprint. Boom. And this is a bare footprint. And over by my camp, too, there was like footprints, but they were smeared. I thought it was like, like a couple of bears in a fight. You know, I didn't know because it was dried mud. And so at any rate, I see this footprint. I'm absolutely free. Um, but I thought, okay, this is cool. <laughs> I'm weird where you're freaked, but you, but you know, you found something, something very good. As the sun's going down, I'm, I'm basically, you know, cleaning up myself and, and I go back to my pack and I'm sitting on a rock. And then this thing, this thing just emerges within the amphitheater and it goes walking over, crash, 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 boom, 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 goes over to this this pond that's not too far away from me and starts drinking. He's drinking, drinking, slurping, and slurping, and slurping. I can hear him, you know, but he was kind of bent over, so I couldn't really see him. And it was dark. He was on the dark side of the amphitheater. Had he been up on the ridge, he would have probably had like the moonrise, you know, hitting him. From there, I hear a splash, 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 crash, crash, boom, 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 going like a semicircle around me. Now I can see him, but it was just his shadow. And he was thin, athletic, eight and a half, maybe nine foot tall, um, knew exactly where he was going, gave me a look of just this icy stare, you know, looking right through me. I was frozen. I was wow. holding How far away do you think he was? How big do I? Oh, sorry, how far away was he from you? How far away? Um, he was probably about probably about 80 feet. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, 70 or 80 feet or so. Not far. And, um, and I got a good, I mean, I got a good look at him, but he was very, very athletic, you know, wasn't quite the, you know, the overweight and definitely wasn't like the Patterson Gimlin, you <laughs> know, um, you know, this, this frumpy Bigfoot. So from there, he just basically does a semicircle and he's going down the hill. Well, of course I'm freaked for the next two hours, you know, you know, oh, yeah. you know sitting there quietly and by myself. And that's probably one of the powers of why he even emerged was because I was by myself. And so within all of this, though, it occurred to me later that it's like, well, this thing must have been someplace where there was no water because there was water up on the ridge line. Why didn't he just drink water up there if he dropped down from the ridge? Now, he could have been what they call cloaking and hiding in place. But I walked right by where he emerged from. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, unless that cloaking stuff works really well, I would have seen him and, or did he, did he emerge from the other place? And I'll leave that to your vivid imagination as to where that is. And so um, you mean by the other place, like maybe emerged through like some kind of portal or just yes. from somewhere else? Yeah. From okay. somewhere else. And, you know, and these things I, I posit as a question rather than me explaining definitively this is what it was because i really don't know um but it was a fascinating and you know another thing that was very interesting with it was that i felt as though he had emerged from someplace else and oh, wow. um 
and and that did I did I get to see where like most of the time people camping and so forth or they're driving down a road and they see him run across the road or something like this. Well, did I get to meet this thing at his point of origin? And so we're just upon the world here. And so I don't know. It Um, sounds like you were in a very special spot that could have been. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then from there, the rest of my hike, I mean, once again, you know, okay, we didn't, we didn't touch fingers, but I just felt like the animal world, like the bears, you know, because they were cause they're constantly running into bears up there. And the bears were just, they just continued playing in meadows and doing their thing. And I just got to sit there and watch them. Oh, and, wow. You know, so I become like this watcher with them. It was fun. It was, it was enlightening. You know, it was very fun. I just felt like I was part of it rather than being above it or below it. And so, yeah, that was That's so powerful. Yeah, it was great. So I do my hike. And, and actually years later, I would develop myself into a situation where I gathered business support from the local community and we expanded the Oregon Caves National Monument. And so that involved, you know, testifying before the Senate subcommittee, meeting the secretary of the interior, you know, handing her a packet. That was the power of me being on, on this board with Crater Lake and all this good stuff. And it's funny because you wonder if like, wait, you know, did I have this encounter? Did this thing want me to? dot, 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 within my world, within the things that I could do for our natural world, that was one. And so. Well, you're, you're the expert on Sasquatch, I would say. (laughs) One of the experts and little people. And so maybe it, it, it showed itself to you for this purpose that you might be the best person to bring it to the world. That could be, you know, um, I feel like, I feel like there's so much that, and that's what I describe in the book too, where I, where I did it through, through other people's narrative, so to speak. In other words, using character to, to invite the story and, you know, and describe situations that we've, that we've done to our earth and how we've made it where, you know, at what point are we way past sustainability and where does that lead to, you know, and is that another future these things portend? And that's, that's one thing about the little people is that, I mean, talking to, you know, imagine holding God, um, you know, I mean, I never looked at it like that. I just thought it was a cool salamander, but, it, but within their lore and within their belief system, that was totally what happened. Wow. That's incredible. And so you had this initial experience and, and I don't, it sounds like there are much better names to call this being other than Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And um, mm-hmm. when I was looking on your website, I th- do you refer to them? Are they also referred to as um, the immortals or the giants? Yeah. So the immortals would be the little people. And so those oh. are, yeah, yeah. So there's, right. so there's two entities going on, just like God and Jesus, you know, the son of God. And that within this, that Jesus is the one that's the teacher, but, but also so are the little people. And that's between the shaman really and the little person, you know, and that's all on his approach. That's all, you know, they say that the little people are very sad because they live this life of two or 3000 years, but a shaman at best might live up to a hundred years. And so they build a close relationship with this, with this wonderful person that then dies. And so then that starts all over again and again and again and again. And so and so, you know, and this is also, I'm drawing from also doctoral dissertations written about this stuff uh, within like the anthropological libraries. 
Uh, UC Berkeley has a fantastic one. Um, no way. I wouldn't have thought that. That's so it, because my curiosity when we first started talking to you is I, I hadn't heard, you know, of course you hear about, you know, elves being a part of mythology, but right. not necessarily in the way that you've described. Yeah. yeah. And I just wonder why it's not more popular. Yeah. Well, you know, most people don't do the research. And so, so this is one and called like man, life, man Life Monsters on Trial. Oh. And so this is where, you know, PhDs are digging into native lore, trying to make some sense of it. And there's a lot there, you know, and that's, and this is, you know, and once again, think language. One of the things I've been gathering up are these little, they're like, they're like little books. Now you're speaking Yurok. Now you're speaking, you know, whatever tribe it is. And so it's kind of like a little language tutorial for college students to be able to, to learn the lingua franca, you know, of the region. Wow. And so, yeah. And this, I mean, from there you go into the dances and the dances. I mean, they're world renewal ceremonies and, you know, stuff like this, where it's like the deerskin dance, the jump dance, what they mean and, and you know, why they do them. And, you know, it's all around renewing the world. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great book called the inland whale where a whale, and actually this happened about six or no, no, probably 10 years ago, these two whales come into the Klamath river and um, it was a mother and daughter. And the mother tells the daughter, you must leave. You must go back to sea. Leave me. You know, I am here to die. And the mother rolls over and dies in the bay. And um, and that absolutely freaked out the natives because that's the inland whale. And what that showed was that the world was wildly out of balance. And it was so interesting because these dances happening these dances happen on alternate years and that was the year of the jump dance. And so, which fell right in line because the way you rewrite the world is you jump and they jump for 10 days going at it and they got to prepare. They have to sweat. They have to, they have to, they have to only eat certain foods at certain times. And, you know, it's all, it's all very, very regimented. Um, but they do this ceremony that then appeases the little people. And that's, that's why they that's why they put their heart and soul in it. And the goal is to see that it's blessed by the little people. Josie, guess what? I love smoothies. Did you know this about me? Oh, this I did. Oh, good. Well, I used to make them every day for years before I'd go to school or work. I felt so good, so nourished, so ready for my day. But eventually I had to stop because my bulky blender was such a hassle. But now I've gotten my smoothies back. And that's because of the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blendjet 2 to complement just about any style. Right now, I'm enjoying the seafoam green blend jet for my mornings. Oof, 
and I like to rock the black marble print because it makes me feel like a badass. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code SPOOKISH12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code SPOOKISH12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. One of my favorite stories was this one, The Lore of Big Sur. And this is down in Northern California. And this is a story of the Dark Watchers. This one is written by Thomas Steinbeck. But within this, the Dark Watchers, what was so crazy with it? So these are the little people of Big Sur. And these are based on the Olone and Esalon tribes that are within that area around the Santa Lucia Mountains. And these little people, so Olive Steinbeck, that was John Steinbeck's mother, so that would have been Thomas's grandmother. She was a teacher in the hills, and she would go to these different ranchos and teach the kids. And when she'd go over this one pass, she would leave like some little trinkets and like a little display of things on a rock and an apple and like this. And then when she would return, there'd be this perfect array of acorns and feathers and like this, well, that was her contact with the Dark Watchers. And these are, um, the significance with this story that's so cool was that it dated back into Spanish California, where they called them literally Los Vigilantes Oscuros, literally meaning the Dark Watchers. And so the knowledge extends back even within our Euro-American history of recognizing the little people. Oh my I've been to Big Sur. And uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mountain, hill, and forest, so I'm not surprised that there's little people. Um, I, I recently visited because Josie, the way you were describing Big Sur, it sounds mm-hmm. a lot like how you would describe Hawaii. And I was there recently and looking mm-hmm. into some of the lore there, and they were talking about um, the Menehune, which was really interesting. And I, I, would that be a version of the little people? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Even though they say, you know, there's this mixed story of, well, the Menahini were real, you know, et cetera. But, you know, real, real, like, were they more aligned with the little people where they're a spiritual entity? Because I don't think they ever found any any physical evidence of these things. And, you know, this is the thing, the whole, the whole Bigfoot debate or Sasquatch debate is that, you know, within the scientific community, they don't want to touch this thing because they really don't have much physical evidence. They say, well, they hide their bones and they do all this stuff. Yeah, I don't know. If you've ever been out on the ground with a with a physical archaeologist, they're super good at spotting this stuff. Yeah, and they know how to spot like a like a bird point and you know all these different all these different tools that are used on that Paleolithic level. So so, a- so that suggests that if they're not just hiding their bones, then what something you touched on a little bit earlier, which I'd love to discuss something it sounds like maybe the little people and Sasquatch beings would do is potentially travel through portals or wormholes or some kind of interdimensional means, which kind of feels like the only possible explanation because we can't find them. And they're just, you know, they seem like they take up a lot of room. You feel like we'd be, you know, we have these one-off instances where you hear about people having encounters, but they're not, you know, like, 
like theirs and that you say you think they would be just so easy to find. So I have no idea what else could possibly be if it wasn't some kind of portal or interdimensional travel. So, mm-hmm. um, but I don't, I never hear about that really. So how did you find out more about uh, that aspect? It's a difficult one to touch on. And there's actually been a couple of books written on it. The quantum Bigfoot, um, Ron Moorhead touches on this. That's based on, you know, from his research and that's what led him down this rabbit hole and or wormhole. The, the tricky, see, the hard part about this is, is that one of my, one of my hippie friends up on one of the communes in Oregon, okay, hippies in Oregon smoking pot and, you know, want hair and all this. Oh, did we mention his brother? <laughs> his brother is Kip Thorne, who is one of four scientists that sat on the panel that approved a young Stephen Hawking's doctoral thesis to get him into Cal Poly and to, to do to do all his work that he did. Um, and also they, I think three years ago, they got, it was, it was a Nobel prize in science um, for basically developing a device that measures exploding black holes in the universe. And, um, and so this is Kip Thorne. You can, you can look him up online. Fantastic. He thinks wormholes don't even exist. You're crazy. You know, um, <laughs> But, you know, the thing, the thing that I counter that with is that, well, wait a minute, we fully know all of 3% of the universe. And so, you know, never mind the other 97%. And, you know, the other thing there, too, is that in July, I mean, this, this even adds more fodder to this, is that two big news developments. One was the discovery of new particles within the Hadron Collider and leading us closer step by step to the dimensional theory or, you know, adding more credo to it as a theory rather than just a hypothesis. And, um, and then the other one that was big were the images coming back from the James Webb telescope. And so, you know, leading us closer and closer into these galaxies. And at what point are we going to find a habitable planet? And so, you know, and yeah. then we just have to figure out how do they get from point A to point B? I, I mean, I personally, I'm a little, a little biased because I think I support that theory. And Mm -hmm. um, Josie, when we did our episode on extraterrestrial enlightenment, the portals, the portals, so many portals, a lot of the foundation of that episode was explaining that a lot of the things that, you know, that is part of our mythology or our legends, that those are all things that are actually based in reality. Not only that, but that they are all extraterrestrial based. So that was really interesting for me to to read about and to continue to research. And for a lot of gaps, and you know, of course, we have no way of knowing. We can't know, but it sure is interesting to talk about and theorize. But to me, it makes sense. And 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 maybe I I, I talk about this in that episode too. Maybe that's the problem is that because it does answer questions, it's kind of comforting, but mm-hmm. I really can't, it seems to fill in a lot of the gaps that I have when I think about these different beings and how they coexist with us on earth and how they can possibly do that without being detected as much. And mm-hmm. so I, fi- I find that, I find that theory one that I would, I, I support. I'm on board well, the portal know, theory. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to add to that, like a lot of my friends are extreme biologists and, and wildlife biologists. I mean, they're out there at two in the morning, you know, they're out at all hours of the night and day crawling around the hills and in the streams and up on the ridges. And 
why aren't they running into Bigfoot? That's why they, that's why they kind of blink twice when I get into this topic because it, they just find it doggone hard to believe. Yeah. Well, I think you make a good point too when you had your encounter about being alone and having good intention and being open to it. Whereas I, I just don't think that's the case for a lot of people, nor do we really put ourselves in a situation to experience that. Maybe even if you're trying, because even like the Bigfoot shows, they've got like a crew and right. a bunch of people and they're hunting yeah. for it. Right. So it's a, it's a different, it's a whole different take than what most, most people are probably from what you guys have ever heard. was like, well, I saw a Bigfoot and he went running. You know, he took off into the bush, you know, like, yeah. yes. and there's no context. There's no, okay. What, what does this mean? Why did it happen? Right. Like and, a much and, more sophisticated being. And, and maybe, and also more than a predator. Cause I think the other really big take on the Bigfoot entity is that it's frightening and malicious and deadly. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely heard a ton of stories where people have seen one face to face and even been chased by them, they claim, and right. that they were certain that they were going to die. Um, mm -hmm. And my, whenever I see stories like that, I'm like, if it wanted to kill you, it would have killed you. So I think it was just trying to scare you away. Um, but it's really, I feel like society nowadays is really painting Bigfoot as a terrifying creature, something to be afraid of. And it's really gotten too far away from it being a spiritual creature, a wise creature. Right. And so right. do you know, is it is it just because, uh, you know, maybe if people stumble into its territory or something like that, and that triggers maybe this entity being protective and its goal mm -hmm. being to scare someone away? Yes. Or also, how much does organized religion play a role in this? One of the stories that makes me think of this is in Ireland with the little people, where they used to have altars for the little people, you know, worshiping them and so forth like that. And those altars were replaced with statues of the saints. And so here comes organized religion into their world two and a half thousand years ago. And, you know, how that had an impact on, you know, the, the thoughts around pagan, you know, belief systems. And, you know, even in our modern day horror movies where it's like, you notice all the sinners, they always die. But but the one that's kind of pure of pure of heart and mind survives. And, and it's kind of in the backdrop of the psyche of the whole movie or the story. But we come back around to this whole thing where, you know, in terms of organized religion, recognizing the fact that, you know, no, there's not one true God, because that's like saying that that all the native tribes on the Northwest coast are all heathens because they didn't believe in Jesus from some guy that lived in the middle East and all the, the activities going on there when they lived in this isolated place on the Northwest coast or right. the Brazilian Amazon or you name where around the world. And so, and so, you know, and it's, and it's something that they don't like to have a belief system other than theirs. And so, and so, and this is, and they've done a, a, you know, an amazing good job at keeping that stuff. And now, I mean, now we're coming out with this whole thing of recognizing diverse cultures, diverse thoughts, you know, and this, and this whole, shall we call it an awakening when really with a lot of historians and so forth, they've, they've been studying this stuff for centuries. And, you know, and so it's, it's something that within certain circles, this is not news. Um, right. And, and so do you think part of the misunderstanding is why, 
when when people do seem to have stories, at least in maybe in the U.S., if they're not part of um, maybe a, a Native heritage, that their encounters seem to be negative, maybe just yeah. accidental ignorance. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, even with the thing that I ran into, it wasn't something like, hey, come cuddle up with me. You know, mm. I mean, it was it was definitely, you know, a real heavy um, and, you know, with, with what felt like a lot of malice. But, you know, one of the messages, and I swear it just burned in my mind, was that I was holding a flashlight and I seemed to hear him say to me, don't even think about it. You know, <laughs> don't you go putting that flashlight on me. I'm not, you know, I'm not... You know, sorry, you're not the cop and I'm not the perpetrator. Uh. And so, and so, you know, and that's, but this is also where we get into this world of right or wrong and good versus evil. And, you know, what does that mean to us versus what would that have meant to if I was a shaman and I was seeking knowledge from these things and crying for luck and here he comes and here's my chance at glory. I mean, here's my chance at, at, at receiving, you know, very invaluable information, you know, that, that helps the tribe that makes the shaman powerful. And so, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's, it's something, and that's where you get like, um, I think Pilates wrote a book, David Pilates wrote a book about this where, you know, he went on to the, uh, one of the reservations and the thing about it is if you talk to the natives around the bars and hanging around, you know, town and so forth, you know, they're going to see this thing as a very evil entity. But if you talk to the berry pickers and the ones that are out there in the forest, they have a completely different story. And so, so, cause they're out there all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and I really like that perspective and opening up yourself and, oh my gosh, if you are approached by one of these, I don't know what to call it. Cause I feel like it, I feel like Sasquatch and Bigfoot isn't as respectful as it needs to be if this creature is, you know, coming mm -hmm. with all this wisdom and um, protection. Yeah, yeah. And, and essentially guidance for people who, if it's shamans that they're working with, clearly have to reach a certain caliber of maybe enlightenment or advancement or development in order for one of these creatures to approach you. So, uh, gosh, what's, what's your favorite name? Uh, for the Sasquatch, what 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 do you tend to call it? Oh, um, there was one I heard the Matakagmi. I think that's the Modoc. Um, Matakagmi. You know, yeah, and um, but they come in different names. I mean, there's the the ones that I mean, I don't really like the Yurok one, which is Uma Ah or Uma Ah, -ah. Um, yeah, and it just depends on how you pronounce it. Um, you know, probably my favorite is the is is a tribe that I know the best. I don't know. It's the Marukarar. So Maruk means upslope. Um, Saruk, downslope. This is why you study the language. But basically the, the people that live up there. And okay. another point I was going to make on that also was that when you think of it in the, in the regard that these things are, are literally protectors, so my advice to people that might have the opportunity to run into one of these things is to, you know, you don't step forward and you don't step back. You just be who you are and carry love in your heart. I mean, you know, like one of the lessons I learned here, because I'm down in Southern California right now, was taking water out to the rattlesnakes because we live in a place that's been very dry, been affected by drought. 
And so I set up these water stations and, and I've learned a lot from the rattlesnakes and they're actually, they, to the, to the local Serrano Indians, they consider them sacred beings. And that's because they do so much for, for the natural world. And it's been just a fascinating experience with them where you let them approach you. And all of a sudden, you know, what that does, it changes the whole dynamic where it's like, you're completely freaked. Oh my God, a rattlesnake. What would happen if you, if he's rattling and you stepped away far enough where he stopped rattling and then you sit down and then you sing a song or you do something where he gets curious, he'll come over, you know, and you just don't make any sudden moves and, and no, you don't want to pick him up or anything like this. Yeah. You want to have control over him and he doesn't want to have control over you. So it's like you're meeting on a mutual ground. And, you know, and, and that's one thing with wildlife in general, they'll, they'll teach you lessons like this, you know, when you, when you spend enough time out there with them and it's, it's amazing. I feel like this, this lesson could be applied to a lot of things in life. It could indeed. <laughs> Pets, your, your Pets. animals, you know, yeah. When you go, when you meet somebody's dog and he's kind of growling and so forth and you approach in a way where the dog is now completely comfortable with you. You know, and sometimes you meet people where, you know, it's like the dog's just growling and mad and barking and wants to bite them. Why is that? What, what energy is that person putting off that creates mm -hmm. that kind of bad? That's a really good, yeah, like Josie said, a good rule for a lot of things. That makes a lot of sense though, about how this creature would react to someone either based on their energy or how they're being approached. So right. Right. I, I gotta say, I, I'm not scared of Bigfoot anymore. I, no, I'm actually, I I'm actually delighted at this point. Uh -huh. I'm, it seems like we're, we could be buddies. We could be uh, buddies. Distant, distant buddies, but <laughs> yeah. respectfully I mean, distant yeah. buddies. Yeah. And especially where, you know, it's just, it's just, it's part of the fabric of the landscape. It's sort of like running into bears out there, you know, and, and your reaction, if you're, ah, bear, you know, well, the bear's going to freak out too. My God, there's a bear. Where is he? Your reaction can, can say it all. Oh, Greg, and I wanted to ask you, you know, for your your book, Ridgewalkers, can you tell us about what that book is about? Does it incorporate the immortals and the giants and like both of those entities in there? Yes, it does. Yeah. And I basically what I did there was I just made it where it's got the elements of story in it. So you've got the, you know, the protagonist and the antagonist and you want to have a strong antagonist. And to me, that was really important. Where, you know, in a way you could make a case where, you know, if we shot one of these things, we went out and killed one, we'd have physical scientific evidence that could create habitat for them, do all these things where we'd recognize them. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's kind of an argument in this whole thing. Of course, my guy, Alex, is more aligned with the natural world and wanting to, wanting to follow those important tenets and guideposts that would lead him, that would help him on his journey. And that's where he became simpatico with, with these, with these entities, because, because they obviously represent that also. Wow. When did you get the idea for this book? Um, it was about right when COVID hit, <laughs> but actually I'd been, I'd been working on it for the last probably six years. And, and I just, you know, it's a series of stories that I'm writing about my family. I just started with me just because I thought, you know, okay, this will be my test case to see what it's like to try to market it, what it's like to, in terms of doing the edits, you know, all this kind of stuff. My other stories I want to write are going to be more like military history. And, oh, um, 
and the crazy stuff my family experienced. Oh, wow. So, um, so there's more books coming out after this one. And that's really, that's really exciting. I'm glad you started with Ridge Walkers um, because, (laughs) you know, of course it's definitely in our realm of interest. Yeah. Who Um, doesn't love a good story like that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's almost like trying to explain ghosts, you know, Mm -hmm. and paranormal and, you know, as far as like, how could you make a scientific case for ghosts? And, um, you know, what, what creates them? Why are they there? What, you know, um, yeah, tough. That portal theory really ties it all together almost. Right. It can. Yeah. And that's one thing about where, you know, when you get into the scientific realm of this, it's like, we don't know what we don't know. And that's one thing that's fun with someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, that at least he explains it in lay terms of what we're witnessing or what, or what this is about, you know, what is the Hadron Collider? What is a, what is a warp in the fabric of the space-time continuum, you know, and explaining these things, you know, um, in ways we understand. I'm going to ask him to, yeah, explain the spirit realm and, uh, and 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 uh, Bigfoot for us. Next. Well, hopefully he'll respond. I, no, Neil deGrasse Tyson won't. I think he was asked about death once, and he's like, "Well, I don't know. You, yeah. you, uh, you decay, and you go back to, you know, the earth." Mm-hmm. And he didn't. He well, didn't. He didn't touch the spiritual wrong. realm with a ten foot pole. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. Yeah, well, a lot of scientists don't. You know, and yeah. a lot of that is, you know, um, but yet. It's interesting because one of the things that one of the ways you could peg him on that, though, is that is that scientific theory and, you know, building it up to that theory that becomes fact versus belief. And so do you believe? I mean, that's an often question I get asked on these podcasts. Greg, do you believe I have a hard time structuring that framework that would that would bring about my belief in the way with which they interpret belief? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's we we can't know and and that's the best place I think for us to sit is just being open to the information we have, knowing that we can't have all the information and hoping right. that we get more and more as time goes on. Right. Your research definitely helps with that. Um yeah. I don't think I've ever heard um this kind of historical approach brought to the idea of Sasquatch and Bigfoot. And the little people I had never even heard of, which is yeah. bonkers to me now, because they seem just as prevalent as the the Bigfoot. Well, yeah. An example of, as far as this thing being a physical being, is I think like the Pendak Orang, which would be a where the Orang Pendak there in the in the central part of the Sumatran rainforest. And I say that because now you've got this thing that stands four feet tall. He's in a double to triple canopy tropical rainforest in a very remote region, the native guides and so forth believe in this thing. They've seen him at least a few times, but he's small enough. And this kind of goes into the Homo florensii, this one right here, the lost world of the little people. And this has come up several times in the news and so forth. Joe Rogan just did a show on this. And, you know, so this is Homo florensii. And the thing with these guys is that is that they're in the fossil record. We have physical evidence of them existing. The other thing that's interesting, too, with those Pacific islands is just like people where in order for them to survive over the course of time, they had to co-evolve down. And so they could not survive as a six foot being, but they could survive as a four foot being. 
and you know and all the animal world followed that same followed that same pattern to be just for survivability on those islands yeah that's right that's right that's why we don't have gigantic 100 foot lizards anymore oh right. which i'm grateful God. for <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the same thing with with the megalodon and all of these creatures the short-faced bears all these, I mean, those are a lot more, um, you know, a lot more sexy or, you know, a lot more terrifying because they're so big, you know, the dire wolf and the saber tooth right. cat and you know, all these guys. Yeah. That's right. The true, the true predators the yeah, ones who don't I mean, care about enlightenment and wisdom and guidance. They're just hungry. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, who wants to learn about the Shasta ground sloth when you've got, you know, if that was the prey, um, as opposed to learning about the predator. Um, it's true. Yeah. Predator is so always more interesting, which I well, think yeah. is part of our pull towards Bigfoot. Um, but, and do you think that has anything to do with why little people aren't as well known that because they're not viewed as predatory? Well, I think it goes into religion. And so, and so we're back around to, you know, this proprietary viewpoint of that there's only one true God. And so, and the last thing they want to do is say, oh, well, there's actually about 615 of them. You know, <laughs> Because that just that just dilutes the whole, you know, the whole thing around Christianity and 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 you know, basically having a captive audience towards that. And so, yeah, so just know, and, suppressed, just the, yeah. so the whole topic suppressed. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, with the little people, that's this is the thing is that you know you're diving into their gods and heroes, and in some places, certain places, not all, but certain places around these wilderness areas and national forests and public lands you are walking in their church and you know um damn it you better be respectful um because because they can these things can be very malevolent there's some stories around that too you know you want to be very respectful when you're in those areas and you obviously want to be aware that hey you know this is a tribal area and so we want to be really really cautionary and don't litter and just be i don't know you know with a lot of love in your heart um, yeah. really enjoy your time out there. I I think that's an excellent point to make. No matter where you are, even if you aren't consciously aware of the other beings that are inhabiting that area, just do it for do it for the earth. Do it because you love the earth and you love yourself. And that's right. I, that's yeah, right. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, um, and and Greg, if our listeners wanted to find your book, how would they find okay. it? You can find it on Amazon. Um, it's up there. It's Ridgewalkers in Two Worlds. I also have my website, theridgewalkers.com, and it can be located there. Or you could email me directly, gwalter2017 at gmail.com. So G-W-A-L-T-E-R 2017 at Gmail. And um, and yeah, I would love to I would love to communicate with any and all. On the topic I think that's so great. Well, you're I love your website. Um it, it you I love your blog posts diving in more to uh, the immortals, the little people, the giants. And I really enjoyed reading um, the first chapter of your book. And I could already tell your first chapter left me on a cliffhanger. And I was like, oh, I need to know what happens next. Got to keep going. <laughs> yes, yes, right. yes. So you opened it up really well. Oh, cool. Thank well, you. Yeah, you're, was... you're just so good about bringing this topic into light. Like you're so, it just seems like such a, it seems like such a real thing when we're talking to you. And it, at this mm -hmm. point, I'm, I'm a believer. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, uh, um, but this is great. I love being on these podcasts and you guys are doing a great job. Yeah. Aww. Keep it up. Keep up. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Greg. Yes. Well, 
there's a lot of interesting areas out there. So, so many, but I think we're going to have to explore cryptids more, explore the little people more, more, and explore Bigfoot more, Josie. So, are you down? Right. Oh, right. I'm in. I'm always All in. Right. Yeah, I mean, awesome. look no further than Santa's elves. You know, um, the little people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Josie, I have so much to cover. So much right, to cover right, for Christmas. Right. Thank you, guys. Awesome. I appreciate it. Oh, um, thank thank you, you, Greg. We loved having you on. We really appreciate it. Uh, do you have any social media that our uh, our listeners can uh, follow you on? I so so I am on Facebook as Greg Walter author, and I'm also on as Greg Walter kind of insurance. I do a lot of local history pieces. And so the history of Southern Oregon, going back to the gold rush and, and even like history of forest service trails, um, you know, natural history, it, it kind of ties in with everything. And so I'm posting, I'm trying to post on both places. I've been, I've been kind of out of it, but I'm going to jump back in it. And you guys have inspired me to do so. Awesome. Yay. Well, we appreciate <laughs> it. And so please go check out the website, which is really phenomenal. And take a look at Greg Walter's book, Ridge Walkers in Two Worlds. Greg, thank you so much for being on with us. Thank you. Thank you. Make it a great evening out there. Absolutely. Thank you. Until, Until next, next week, stay spooky. Stay spooky. Stay spooky.